Amen. You may be seated. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. The first ten verses of this chapter actually presents several problems for me. In one sense, these verses are so very easy to preach. And yet in another sense, they're very difficult. And in our series from Ephesians, I've struggled with this message this morning more than than any of the others in this series, and I think I know why. I say that because if you're here today and not saved, this might be the most important message that you'll ever hear in all of your life. And I'm not saying that because I'm the one doing the preaching. I say that because of the subject matter under consideration. I've never been more serious in my life than when I say this might be the most important message that you will ever hear. Your eternal destiny depends on your response to the truths that we look at. You know, in the first place, nobody will ever be saved until they understand their condition. And some way or another, we live in a, in a day where most people just never really get the picture. I, I read a little story about a basketball coach, college basketball coach, and he went to the university's president's office demanding a raise, and he wanted it right then, right there. He, he couldn't wait. He wanted some definite commitment. And uh, so they got to bickering back and forth, and, and uh, he's trying to stress the importance of sports and how it ought to be equal with everything else. And the president said, please, he said, you already make more than the entire history department. And uh, he said, um, well, that might be so, but you just don't know what i got to put up with. About that time, he heard some footsteps in the hall, and he opened the door and looked out, and here's one of the one of the jocks running down through there, and he said, hey, come over here. He grabbed him by the arm and said, go down to the office and, and the gym, and go down there and see if I'm there. Boy, kid just took off lickety-split hard as he could go, and about 20 minutes later, he come back, and he was sweating profusely. He was exhausted from his search. And he said, Coach, Coach, he said, you're not there. And the coach looked over at the college president, and he said to him, Now, see there, that's what I'm talking about. said, he could have called and never would have had to gone down there. <laughs> well, you see, some people never really see the need. And for some people, it's basketball above education, and they, they certainly never see themselves as being part of the problem. Like this coach, you know, I couldn't be part of the problem. 
And most people never see themselves as actually being the problem. We look around at the world and we say, my, things are so bad, it's so terrible. And we wonder to ourselves, you know, what in the world is at the root of all of this? And the fact of the matter is, we are. We are. Now, in this chapter, Paul is reminding his readers of their, of their present position as the saints, but also of their past condition as sinners. In other words, he's reminding them of where they could have been without Christ. He's reminding them of what God had saved them from. And you can sum all ten of these verses up. And by the way, we could stay here a long time. A few years ago, I I preached seven messages just from verses 8, 9, and 10. So it would be easy to, to preach 12 or 13 messages just from this one short section here. But if you just look at all of it, just a big picture type of glance at it, you see two basic things. You see the problem with man, and you see the provision of God. Man's problem, God's provision. Notice the first three verses. And you have he quickened, that is made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others." The fact that something is wrong is painfully obvious. Many, many years ago, back in the 19th century, in fact, G.K. Chesterton said, whatever else is true or not, this one thing is certain, man is not what he was meant to be. You know, this is not at all like what God intends for us. And it doesn't take a genius to figure out that something is really wrong with mankind. The question is, what is at the heart of all of this? Why are we like this? And there's a lot of different theories. The foolish followers of Darwin and his theory of evolution tell us that everything's getting better than better, you know. And given enough time and enough effort from man, eventually we'll be able to reach down by our own bootstraps and pull ourselves up out of the mire. And eventually, man, after so many generations, will finally, at long last, evolve into something that is wonderful and will create a utopia here on this earth. I'm telling you, there are people that really believe that. They say evolution is the answer, that time will take care of all of this. Others say the answer is an environment and or education. Just give people enough welfare to get them, you know, out of the gutter and to 
you know, feed them and clothe them and encourage them and then get them in the public run schools and educate them and so forth. And eventually we'll figure out what the problems are and a solution for those problems. And the theories go on and on. But listen, folks, at the bottom line, at the heart of the matter, is the problem of the heart. That man is a sinner by nature. A few years ago, Bill Toler, a Southern Baptist preacher, told a story. He was teaching, in fact, in, in, in college here in Texas. And so one afternoon, a young man... An Air Force officer got off work. He uh, picked up his estranged wife, his four children, a woman expecting another child. They drove out to the edge of town where there was a lake. And he just drove the car off into the lake. Some college students were nearby, and they heard the crash, and after a while, they saw one head pop up. And as they were moving in that direction, suddenly they saw another head pop up. And they saw this man take his hand and start pushing his wife's head under the water to make sure that she drowned, and He's holding her under the water until finally he sees them as they're rushing toward the scene of the crash. And so he drags himself out of the water and he is sitting there and the woman is screaming about her children are trapped in the car. And that young college student said that whenever they heard that there were children in the car... We dove down in the water, down into the car, and the nose of the car had become stuck in the mud, and naturally the pressure of the water, and an air bubble was trapped there in the back part of the car, and there were those four little kids, their faces up toward the back window of the car, and that air bubble screaming frantically. And this young college student took his fist and he beat on the windows until his his hands were bloody and he could not break the windows. He could not open the doors. He could not in any way get those children out of there. And then he said, suddenly I noticed that the bubbles stopped and, and I realized those four little children died just inches away from me. With tears in his eyes, he said to the preacher, he said, Dr. Toller, what is wrong with human nature? What is wrong with the human race? And he said, not just this incident, but the daily papers that that report robbery and rape and killing and fighting and war and all of these things. What is wrong with the human race? As I read that article... I knew that I knew the answer as he did, and you do. That is, the problem with the human race is sin. 
It doesn't take some long dissertation of some kind. It doesn't take a big speech. It doesn't take a lot of study and research to come up with the answer for our problems. The problem is sin. And notice how Paul is describing the natural man in these three verses. Notice he tells us the natural man, verse number one, he's dead. That is, he's spiritually dead. And if you're here today and you've never been born again by the Spirit of God, you are spiritually dead. Not only are you dead, but the natural man is also defiled because it says that he is dead in trespasses and sins. So you're dead, you're defiled, and then notice verse number 2, the natural man is disobedient. In other words, the natural man doesn't care anything about obeying the commandments of God, has no concern about God's will for his life. They walk according to the course of this world. We wonder what's wrong. Notice what he says. They walk according to the course of this world, and notice that he mentions the fact that of the satanic powers in this world, According to the children of disobedience. Listen, that's what man does by nature. We don't have to teach anyone to do what is wrong because we do that by nature. By nature, we are dead, we're defiled, we're disobedient, and then we are doomed. As he says here in verse 3, we are the children of wrath. Do you understand that we don't have to do anything in order to be lost? We don't have to do anything to go to hell? I mean, that's what we are by nature. Every person. It's not a matter that just, you know, someday at the age of 10 or 11 or 12 or 15 or 20 or whatever, that suddenly someday you decide, well, I don't want anything to do with God and, you know, I've just made up my mind, I'd just soon die and go to hell. That's not what sends you to hell. You Listen, to go to hell, all you've got to do is nothing, nothing, nothing. You don't have to go out here and rob a bank. You don't have to get drunk. You don't have to commit adultery. You don't have to do anything to go to hell. All you've got to do is just live and die and you'll be there. Because we're all sinners by nature. And by nature, listen, this is what the Bible says, we are condemned already. You see, there's no such thing as someday standing before the Lord, like some people teach, and having all of our works weighed in the balances, and if our good works outweigh our bad works, then we're saved, and if the bad works outweigh the good works, then we're lost, and and on that basis that we are then condemned, there's no such thing as that. Because the Bible says for the sinner, for the natural man, that he is condemned already. Now we look at that picture and we think, how awful. That we are dead, we're defiled, we're disobedient, we're already doomed to an eternity without God. But the fact of the matter is, it's even worse than we imagine. It's worse than that. In fact, I don't have words to paint a picture to illustrate just how bad 
the natural man is. And the reason I say that is because we're looking at all of this through human eyes. And if we could just see ourselves through the eyes of God, we would be shocked beyond belief. I remember before my dad trusted Christ as his Savior, he used to say as I was witnessing to him, well, he said, I'm just as good as those people down there at the church, and if they're going to heaven, then I'll surely go to heaven. And and what he said was absolutely right. To one extent, he was just as good as any of those folks down there at the church. He was just as good as any of you. I mean, it wasn't a matter of being good and bad. It wasn't a matter of some crime you had committed. The fact is, we're sinners by nature. All of us. I want you to remember that Paul is reminding these Christians of what they used to be. And we need to remember what we were before the Lord saved our soul. Because that person sitting across the aisle from you, that next door neighbor, that co-worker, that person who does not yet know Christ is their Savior, you need to understand to this very day you are no better than they are. We're all sinners. The only difference between you and them is the fact that you've received the Lord Jesus Christ and now there is no condemnation. But for them, they're condemned already. You see, that's man's problem. But I want you to notice God's provision beginning in verse number 4. Paul says, but God. There is a sermon just in those two words. In consideration of this awful picture, But God, who is rich in mercy for His great love, wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace are ye saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship. That means masterpiece. We are God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Now understand, the provision for man's problem can only come from one place, and that's God Himself. And regardless of how hard the natural man tries, he can never meet his own deepest need. It's utterly impossible. Education won't do it. Example won't do it. Encouragement won't do it. Entertainment won't do it. Environment won't do it. Enrollment in the church will not do it. Only God can meet the need of the sinner. There's at least seven things that he mentions here regarding salvation. 
In verse number 1 and again in verse 5, notice that salvation is unto life. Verse 2 and 3, he says that salvation is from sin. In other words, the minute that you die, the moment you trust Christ as your Savior, all of a sudden God begins to do a work in your life and He begins to deliver us from the sins of the flesh. Number three, salvation is in Christ. Number four, it is for a purpose. Number five, it's by grace. Number six, it's through faith. Number seven, it's unto good works. And we could just go on and talk about each and every one of them. But the whole idea that I want you to see this morning is that Paul is showing them, look, this is what you used to be, and this is what God has done for you. Notice the source of our salvation, verse 6. In Christ. That, that, listen, that says it all. Jesus said, I am come that they might have life and might have it more abundant. Listen, he wasn't talking about physical life. Those followers, those disciples, the apostles, they were already alive physically, but they were dead spiritually. And Jesus says, I've come that they might have life. And he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. You see, this is the source, and there's no supply unless you go to the source. The church can't help, and the preacher can't help, and you can't help yourself. The source of salvation is in Christ. Notice the supply of salvation, he tells us, is by grace. And we've already talked a lot about grace, and we need to keep talking a lot about grace because grace is sort of a shorthand or a summation for all of the good stuff God does. It's God providing what we need but do not deserve. The source of salvation is Christ, but the supply is through the grace of God. I'm so glad we sang that wonderful old song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. I cringe every time I hear some folks talk about wanting to rewrite the old hymn books and to take out words like wretch and, and worm and take out words like blood and things of that nature. You mark it down when someone starts trying to rewrite things in that manner. They've got a serious spiritual problem. But saved a wretch like me. And again, I say, if we could just see ourselves as God sees us, and yet the amazing thing is, as bad as we are, which is much worse than we could ever think, God still loves us. The supply of salvation is grace. Notice the simplicity of salvation. For by grace are you saved through faith. You see, salvation is a matter of acceptance, not a matter of achievement. And, and, and what could God have possibly done to make salvation easier than what it is? And again and again, throughout this New Testament here, we find over and over again, He tells us that we're justified by faith. 
It's not the works of the law. In other words, it's not the efforts of our hand. It's not our good intentions. It's not our sweet disposition. It's not any other thing that we could ever do. It's by grace through faith. Listen to me. A little child can believe. You don't have to climb the highest mountain. You don't have to go down to the depths of the deepest sea. You don't have to make some sort of a religious journey and deprive yourself of the pleasures of this world in order to qualify for salvation. All you have to do is simply put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the simplicity of it. And you see, that's the very thing that's a stumbling block for so many people because they keep thinking, well, surely I've got to do something. Listen, you've already done enough. I mean, you've got you in this mess. And you can't do anything to get yourself out of it. Except to trust Him. That's the simplicity of it. Notice the surety of it. For by grace are you saved. In other words, that very statement, the very word saved implies Certainty. In other words, if you're saved, then you cannot be lost. and You can't be saved and unsaved at the same time. You can't be delivered and not delivered. You either are or you're not. You're either alive or you're dead. There's no in-between. You have life or you don't have life. And when he says we're saved, he's implying that there is surety. In other words, we have been delivered. He's not saying that someday you're going to be delivered by grace through faith. You are saved. Listen, that's something in the past. That's something that's already happened. So when we talk about the surety of our salvation, we can do so because our salvation does not depend on us. We couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't keep ourselves. We're kept by the power of God, the Bible says. Remember, the Holy Spirit is our seal and our surety. If you came to church this morning not knowing beyond any shadow of a doubt that you'd go to heaven if you died. Now listen carefully. I know some of you are thinking, well, preacher, look at us. I mean, we're, we're, we're here every week. I mean, look around, preacher. I mean, all, all of these people are already saved. Why are you preaching a message like this? I'm preaching the message because God put it on my heart, but, but listen to me. The fact of the matter is, we look around and we say, well, these people are here every week. Uh, These people are members of the church. These people sing in the choir. They do this or they do that. And we assume that they're saved. And I'm telling you, you are wrong if you just think everybody in this building is going to heaven when they die. You're wrong. And how tragic, how awful, how terrible it would be to think that someone would attend a service like this and hear that scene and uh, and hear the truth of God's Word and then get up and walk out the door and die and go to hell. It's just more than I even want to think about. But if you're one of those, whoever you are, that, that you're not certain that 
that you've been born again. Listen to me. I want to leave you with these closing thoughts. God has provided absolutely everything you need to meet your greatest problem. The question is, will you accept it? God provided it. It's like God's standing there holding it out saying, here, take. Will you take it? Now, here are the thoughts I want to leave you with. First of all, salvation is what you need more than anything else. Above everything, folks, you need salvation. Not only that, but salvation will begin to bring a change into your life that absolutely nothing else can do. In other words, you'll never be the same. It's not a matter of all of a sudden you're going to become perfect or anything like that, but I want to tell you what, the things that, that, that you've been battling with all of these years, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit will start to do a work in your heart and you'll begin to notice these changes that God is making. Not only that, but salvation is something that you'll never lose. It's not a matter you won't get it today and lose it tomorrow. You will receive eternal life. Now, here's something else. Salvation is something you will never regret. I've never met anyone in all of my life that said, yeah, preacher, I was saved 20 years ago, but I've been sorry about it ever since. Anybody ever met, met somebody like that? Oh, yeah, I'm saved, but I wish I hadn't become a Christian. You'll never meet anyone like that. Because Jesus saves and He satisfies. But here's the last thing. And that is salvation is something you can't get anywhere else. There's no other source. You want to buy an automobile, you can go to this dealership or that dealership. You want to buy a suit of clothes, you can go to this department store or that department store and You've got all these different sources. But when it comes to salvation, to put it in plain, simple, hillbilly language, as we used to say, there ain't no place to go but to Jesus. Amen. That's it. That's it. Man's problem? Oh, man's problem's man. The provision is God Himself. He provided a sacrifice that each and every one of us, those of us dead in trespasses and sins, that we might have life in Christ. Will you receive Him this morning as we stand together, Father?